0: Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day, and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles, and discussion from around the globe. <laughs> President Mobutu, I have just had a warm and useful discussion, and I am pleased to have been able to meet again with President Mobutu, who's been a faithful friend of the United States for some 20 years. The President and I took this opportunity to review the state of U.S., Dairian relations, and we found a large area of agreement on the major points we discussed. Mobutu Sese Seko, once described by Ronald Reagan as a voice of good sense and goodwill, was one of the most powerful and controversial figures of the post-colonial era in Africa. From humble roots, his charisma and intelligence propelled him from obscurity to the power halls of Kinshasa. In this episode, I examine his rise to prominence, his bold steps and missteps, and his eventual fall from grace. On the 14th of October, 1930, a young woman who'd escaped to life in a chieftain's harem gave birth to a young boy, not far from the banks of the mighty Congo River. As was customary at the time, the child's parents gave him European Christian names, Joseph Desiree, followed by Mobutu, a name suggested by a relative. The boy's parents worked in respectable, if not lucrative fields. She was a hotel maid, he was a cook, but like the rest of their countrymen, they lived under the dark cloud of a repressive colonial regime. The European colonisation of Africa, which had begun 45 years earlier, had led to all manner of atrocities, ranging from the use of concentration camps in South Africa to genocide in Namibia. While these horrors received little attention until decades later, even by the standards of the late Victorian and early Edwardian era, the horrors inflicted on the native people of the perversely named Congo Free State, were more than the other colonial powers could stomach. The Belgian monarch, King Leopold, a close relative of Britain's Queen Victoria, turned the vast African territory into his personal fiefdom. His lackeys used slave labour, men, women and children, to extract rubber from the forests and export it for his own gain. Labourers were given onerous production targets That would have even given Joseph Stalin pause for thought. Failure to meet quotas led to beatings, mutilations, amputations, and oftentimes execution. By 1908, just two decades before Mobutu's birth, international outrage forced the Belgian government to act. They relieved the king of his crown holding and formally created the Belgian Congo. Slavery and violent repression were banned, although forced labour and atrocities continued. The all-powerful Europeans went from actively condoning violence to simply turning a blind eye. By the time of Mobutu's birth, the Congo had an extensive infrastructure network, but its sole purpose was to efficiently get the nation's natural resources to the Atlantic coast as quickly as possible. From there... ...rubber and other goods were exported overseas. The profits lined the pockets of the Belgians rather than the native people. Mobutu's parents were among the many who left rural areas and took up work opportunities... ...created by the needs of the Belgian colonists in ever-expanding urban areas. The people left behind in the countryside increasingly found themselves shipped en masse... ...from one province to another to ensure copper mining or rubber extraction quotas were met. Land was divvied up among white settlers and foreign corporations. Political activity was forbidden, and the rights of the Congolese merely extended to having a secondary judicial system presiding over largely trivial matters, a despotic king as head of state, that his dystopian vision lived on and in an apartheid-type system. Meanwhile, the capital city, Leopoldville, bore his name, a sombre reminder of the regime the Congolese lived within. Young Joseph Desiree Mobutu grew up in an era when the country was engulfed by its biggest challenge since the decline of Leopold, the Great Depression. As economies around the world spiralled into chaos, the demand for natural resources dwindled. Employment dropped by two-thirds, and the Belgian authorities were forced to take some steps to improve the living and working conditions of the locals. In the late 1930s, as things slowly began to improve, tragedy struck when Mobutu's father died. At the time of his passing, he'd been working as a chef for a Belgian judge. The judge's wife developed a fondness for his son, and her benevolence gave him something many of his countrymen lacked, an education, Under her tutelage, he became proficient in French, the official language of the colony. He was well placed to succeed when he later attended a Catholic school. He was an excellent, though mischievous, student who excelled in sports. In 1949, his curiosity led him into trouble when he ran away from school with a girl. Having been apprehended, he was punished by being forced to serve in the force publique the sort of hybrid army and police force that's origin stretched back to the earliest days of King Leopold's regime. While serving his time, Mobutu befriended Louis Bobozo, a Congolese sergeant who would go on to play a major role in his life. He continued his studies as best he could, voraciously devouring European literature, while taking a keen interest in politics, particularly British and French. His reading led him into writing and by 1958, his interest in writing had led him to a journalism course in Belgium. It was while in Belgium that Mobutu became acquainted with Patrice Lumumba, a Congolese salesman turned political activist who led the movement National Congolais, a political think tank advocating for, among other things, Congolese independence. Lumumba's vision for reform stretched far beyond the confines of the Belgian Congo, as a pan-Africanist, he championed the rights of all Africans, regardless of ethnicity, political beliefs or religion. He sought a self-governing continent, free of colonial rule. Needless to say, the Belgian regime kept a close eye on him. It has been alleged that Mobutu's introduction to him was orchestrated rather than accidental, and that Mobutu was recruited by the Belgian secret services, to spy on Lumumba. If he was a spy, his service as such was short-lived, as nationalist zeal swept the world in the aftermath of World War II. The Ghanaians, Nepalese and Indians, who had fought for what's since been referred to as white freedom during World War II, demanded their own right to self-governance, and the long-suffering Congolese were no exception. In May 1960, just months after being arrested for inciting a deadly anti-colonial riot, Patrice Lumumba's Movement National Congolais won parliamentary elections. A month later, the nation broke free from the Belgian shackles and the independent Republic of Congo was born. Lumamba, after delicate negotiations, was its first premier. Mobutu was the Secretary of State to the Presidency. Mobutu at this time was described by an American diplomat as being extremely intelligent and having great potential. The nation as a whole had no lack of potential with its vast resources and youthful population. But decades of political suppression had created a void in leadership that political ideologists and prominent figures from every region were rushing to fill. Despite the underlying tensions... Independence was confirmed during a formal ceremony in which the King of Belgium presented himself as a proud father figure who had overseen the creation of a country. It was as if despite everything, this had been Belgium's plan all along. But in a response full of foreboding for events to come, Lumumba made clear that the Congolese had fought for their freedom and they would not forget the atrocities of Belgian rule. Days later... Congolese troops and the force publique mutinied. They didn't want to serve in a military controlled by white colonialists. Mobutu intervened and tried to quell the revolt. Prime Minister Lumumba sought military assistance from the Soviet Union, while the President sought help from the United States. Against the backdrop of the Cold War, the fledgling nation found itself at the centre of an international tug of war. Mobutu, with the army on side, was now in the position of kingmaker as the prime minister and president fought for control. Ultimately, Mobutu came down on the side of the western-leaning president. Lumambu, his former ally, was captured and handed over to secessionist rebels for execution with the tacit, if not explicit, consent of Mobutu. Mobutu was promoted to major general. But the attempts at development stuttered along amid regional infighting and secessionist rebellions. Pierre Mullally, a former cabinet minister under Lumumbu, led a revolt in 1964 that saw the nation divided in two. It felt to Mobutu to quell the revolt and restore order. But another conflict quickly arose when the president ignored election results and tried to install the minority leader as prime minister. Parliament refused to accept his appointment, and civil war seemed inevitable. Once again, it fell to Mobutu to find a solution. Only this time, instead of siding with the parliament or the president, he chose a third option, a coup. Mobutu seized power, portraying himself as the saviour of a nation that had fallen into chaos under five years of inept political rule. He pledged to restore order, and fulfil the dreams espoused before independence. But he claimed it would take him another five years to get the job done. During that time frame, he was to be an absolute monarch of sorts, an all-powerful despot. Charming, funny, intelligent, and with the physique of an athlete, he was like a comic book superhero, almost too good to be true. He'd come to the nation's rescue before, and he seemed like the best, and really the only man for the job. In late 1965, Parliament surrendered most of its authority to the saviour designate. It simply reserved the right to review his decrees. Mobutu happily accepted, then a few months later, stripped the Parliament of its last remaining rights and suspended the elected assembly. In hindsight, it's easy to portray Mobutu as some scheming, power-hungry despot just waiting for his chance to assume total control. But you can't overlook the world he grew up in. As a youngster, he knew nothing of freedom or democracy. He lived in a world where the powerful called the shots, and everyone danced to their tune. Freedom had brought five years of violent chaos and stagnation to the Congo. It's plausible that Mobutu, having studied the likes of Churchill and de Gaulle closely, thought the Congo needed a strong man to get the country on its feet. He was the sub-Saharan Julius Caesar of his day. On the other hand, it's entirely possible he was just an opportunist, power-hungry would-be despot. But whatever his motives, he was now firmly in control. Coming up, Mobutu seeks to forge a cultural identity and the Congo becomes Zaire. Fascinating People, Fascinating Places presents Five Amazing Facts. Brought to you by Daniel Mainwaring, author of When Babel Floods and the Treacherous Exhibit. Mobutu shares his birthday with, among others, the former US President Dwight Eisenhower. His residence was an extravagant palace built in the heart of the rainforest. It's estimated that it cost a hundred million dollars to build. One of his sons, Kungulu, became a key figure in the military, but his brutal behavior earned him the nickname Saddam Hussein. Mobutu shares the anniversary of his death with Captain Blythe, most famous for the mutiny on the bounty, and Mobutu is buried in a mausoleum in Rabat, Morocco. Having established himself as the de facto emperor, Mobutu was presented with the same problem Stalin, Tito and other despots faced. His vast nation wasn't comprised of a single race or ethnic group. In fact, while Tito struggled to keep half a dozen ethnic groups unified in Yugoslavia, the Congo was comprised of over 200 different ethnicities. The majority were Bantu speakers. And the Congo people, the largest ethnic group. Before, during, and after independence, secessionist movements had been active, particularly in the south of the country. To help address these tensions, Mobutu pushed the idea of a state rather than regional or tribal identities. He embarked on a scheme called Authenticity. Not only did it help to galvanize a national identity, It also sought to remove the last vestiges of colonial rule. It was similar to the nationalistic process Eamon de Valera had led in the Republic of Ireland decades earlier, where the Gaelic games replaced English sports, such as cricket, and counties were renamed to reflect Irish tradition rather than English dominion. Leopoldville, named after the butcher of the Congo, was renamed Kinshasa individuals were strongly encouraged to adopt traditional African names instead of European, or the specifically French names that had been commonplace. In the majority Catholic nation, priests face up to five years in prison for baptizing children with European Christian names. Mobutu himself dispensed with his forenames, Joseph and Desiree, and he retitled himself Mobutu Sese Seko, Kuku Nugbendu Wazabanga, though he was more commonly called Mobutu Sesiseko. More bizarrely, he renamed the country from Congo to Zaire. This was not odd move. Firstly, Congo was an African name, and despite a difference in spelling, phonetically the same name as the largest tribal group. Moreover, Zaire was a vestige of the colonial era, was a Portuguese bastardization of the Kingono word Nazir, which referred to the river that swallows all other rivers, otherwise known as the Congo. The authenticity drive also extended to dress. Mobutu himself took to wearing a leopard skin hat, which spawned him the nickname the Leopard of Zaire. He also abandoned his military attire and took to wearing a Maoist style top, The public were encouraged to follow suit. Ties, waistcoats and other Western garments were discouraged. Despite superficial appearances, Mobutu was not a communist. Far from it. His one-time ally and deposed predecessor, Lumumba, had allied himself with the communists. After his demise, the Soviets backed southern secessionists against the Mobutu regime. But while Mobutu was an avowed anti-communist, He wasn't willing to allow his nation to become a puppet state for the West. Zaire, like other newly independent nations, including India, was officially non aligned. He was warmly received by US presidents, but their apparent embrace of him had more to do with his disdain for the Soviets than any sincere sense of connection. Over time, his relationship with another communist nation, China, became complicated. Initially, There was hostility between the two that only exacerbated when China offered support to left-wing rebels. But by the early 70s, China had emerged as a major player on the world stage. It had ended isolationism by opening up to Nixon's America without making any concessions on human rights or Maoist principles. But at the same time, it had a troubled relationship with the Soviet Union. In essence, China was a third option between the dueling powers of the Cold War. The two nations, once allied, engaged in a proxy war in neighbouring Angola, where Maoists fought with Soviet and Cuban-backed Marxists for supremacy. In his later years, his position shifted once again, and Mobutu developed cordial relations with East Germany, the successor to the Cubans and Soviets, his agent provocateur in Angola. But as with everything, Mobutu's relationship was complex. The East Germans were supporting leftist Angolan rebels who opposed apartheid South Africa, the white African leadership in turn being allied with the West. Over time, his relationship with the former colonial power Belgium veered from close collaboration to outward hostility. It's perhaps fitting that Mobutu's closest foreign ally, was Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceaușescu. Like himself, Ceaușescu claimed to be non-aligned, a communist but one operating outside the tentacles of the Soviet bloc. Like the Romanian, Mobutu found himself fated by Western powers on account of his anti-Soviet politics, while the same nation seemingly turned a blind eye to his megalomania. And above all, like Ceaușescu, Mobutu was someone who had a vision for a utopian society from which he was exempt. The cultural conformity, the solidarity, the work, these were the things to occupy the little people. Mobutu, on the other hand, like the so-called communist Ceausescu, had free reign to exploit the nation and the people he pledged to serve. Whereas once the Belgian colonists had enslaved the people of the Congo, and gorge themselves on the riches they created, Mobutu himself decided to employ the same tactics with on occasion forced labour, producing mineral exports with the revenue lining his pockets. The Congo in terms of raw materials is one of the wealthiest countries on earth, but Mobutu, like King Leopold before him, transferred the wealth to one individual, rather than allowing his people to enjoy the fruits of their labour. It was estimated that by the early 1980s, he had amassed a personal fortune of $5 billion, most of it securely locked up in secret Swiss bank accounts. In context, even by 2021, the median salary in the Congo amounts to about $800 per month. Mobutu's lavish spending extended to a fleet of Mercedes and a palace in the jungle that his mate Ceausescu may even have envied. But like any effective tyrant, Mobutu was a master showman and relied on the perceptions of his country's apparent growth rather than the harsh reality. On the 30th of October 1974, Mobutu Zaire enjoyed its finest moment in the spotlight. The world's greatest boxer, Muhammad Ali, fought George Foreman for an astronomical purse of $5 million dollars in a match later dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle. Muhammad Ali, like Mabutu, had grown up in a country where he was treated at best as a second-class citizen, subject to white dominance and abominations such as Jim Crow laws. Like Mabutu, he abandoned his birth name of Cassius Clay and adopted a name he felt better reflected his heritage. Ali was and remains one of the greatest athletes of all time, ...and is widely respected as an inspirational figure in the civil rights movement. His arrival in Kinshasa was a godsend for Mobutu... ...as it gave him credibility as a seemingly forward-thinking post-colonial reformer. Awkwardly, his rival, George Foreman, also an African-American... ...caused a stir on his arrival as he travelled with dogs... ...that bore resemblance to the dogs used by Belgian soldiers to oppress and intimidate the Congolese during the colonial era. Ali won the fight and is regarded as arguably the best sporting event of the 20th century. It was certainly a boon for Mobutu as it put his capital on a global stage. But in another twist, the boxing match was bankrolled by another dictator, the -the at-the-time pan-African Colonel Gaddafi of Libya. A decade later, having shifted his attention to Arabic rather than African unity. Gaddafi, during a visit to neighbouring Rwanda, attempted to spark an insurgency against his erstwhile ally, Mobutu. One of the long-lasting effects of Mobutu, siphoning off money for himself and his family, was inflation. The currency tumbled in value, and ordinary citizens found themselves forced to supplement their incomes by doing as Mobutu's henchmen did, Demanding bribes. In the late 70s and 80s, it became commonplace for civil servants, policemen, and even medics to demand bribes from citizens in order to perform their jobs. It wasn't a question of the Congolese all turning to corruption, it was simply a matter of economics. With most of the money carted off to Geneva, people had to get creative so they could eat, support their families, and pay their bills. Despite his corruption, Mobutu was fairly safe with the tacit support of the West as a bulwark against the Communism until the late 1980s. Not long after enjoying a visit to George Bush's White House, Mobutu suddenly realised that the Western leaders were just as cynical and transactional as him. No sooner had the Soviet bloc collapsed than the US and Europe began highlighting his record of despotic abuse. Just one year after Bush left office, Mobutu, who had been wined and dined in the White House, found himself being refused a simple visa to visit the United States. Things quickly deteriorated. Unpaid soldiers began rioting in Kinshasa. But much more horrific events were unfolding in neighbouring Rwanda. Like Zaire, Rwanda was a former Belgian colony comprised of different ethnic groups. Upon independence, the Belgians had created a structure that left the minority Tutsis in charge. By the mid-90s, the majority, fueled by ethnic baiting emanating from radio stations, began a process of ethnic cleansing that shocked the world. Some 800,000 Tutsis and supportive Hutus were massacred. Eventually, a Tutsi-led force regained control. The Hulu extremists, many of them war criminals, fled and found not just sanctuary, but a red carpet welcome from Mobutu in Zaire. He provided them with refuge from where they could launch attacks on their homeland. His meddling spectacularly backfired when the Rwandan government transgressed into Congolese territory and joined forces with a Congolese rebel named Laurent Kabir. The combined force marched on Kinshasa, while troops from Angola, which had suffered under Mobutu's international meddling, began to attack from the south. The Congolese army, poorly paid if paid at all, and citizens struggling to make ends meet while their ruler lived opulently, eventually stopped resisting. As Kabila seized power, Mobutu initially fled to Togo, where he was refused exile. Well, I, have, I, I want to make a couple of points on it. It does uh, appear that he has left uh, Kinshasa. The United States' position is clear. We want to see a transition to a genuine democracy. The second point I want to make is that uh, President Mandela of South Africa has done a superb job of exercising leadership in this area. And the United States is supporting him and his efforts. And I I want the whole world to get behind uh, the leadership that Nelson Mandela is showing there and do what we can to support Africa in taking one of the largest and most important nations in Africa and, and promoting a democratic transition. That is what I think is important. Thank you very much. He then made his way to Morocco. The king there himself, no stranger to tyranny after his brutal repression of Western Sahara, gave him refuge. But it was short-lived as the leopard of Zaire, riddled with cancer, was already on his last legs. Five months later, Mobutu was dead. The intelligent, handsome, charismatic young man, who once seemed to offer such hope to his fledgling nation, had fallen prey to the temptations of avarice, corruption and decadence. The man who could have been the Congo's Nelson Mandela, had instead become a modern day King Herod. Decades later, Zaire, now known again as the Democratic Republic of Congo, still struggles to overcome the carnage left by his promising yet ultimately devastating regime.